This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. It's January, and that means bookworms are setting reading goals. One of my favorite strategies for reading more is to make sure I always have an audiobook ready. Not sure what book to download next? Rachel Hawkins just released The Villa, a stunning thriller inspired by Frankenstein, Fleetwood Mac, and The Manson Murders. The audiobook is read by a full cast of narrators, including one of my favorites, Julia Whalen, whose voice you probably recognize from The Great Alone, Educated, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, and so many more. Start listening to The Villa by best-selling author Rachel Hawkins now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zara Kapinski, and today I'm speaking with Tori Dunlap about her new book, Financial Feminist, which is an inclusive guide to all things money, from managing debt to investing and voting with your dollars. In a starred review, Library Journal said, Financial Feminist is a much needed book about the intersections between feminism and financial literacy. Tori Dunlap is an internationally recognized money expert and podcast host. After saving $100,000 at age 25, Tori quit her corporate job in marketing and founded her first 100K to fight financial inequality by giving women actionable resources to better their money. Host of the number one business podcast, Financial Feminist, Tori's work has been featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show, The New York Times, and more. Called the voice of financial confidence for women by CNBC, she has helped over 3 million women negotiate salary, pay off debt, build their savings, and invest. Tori now travels the world writing, speaking, and coaching about personal finance, online businesses, and confidence for women. Tori, welcome to A Bookish Home. I found the book really helpful, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about what they'll find in your new book, Financial Feminist? Yeah. So if anyone has tried to read a personal finance book before, this one is going to feel very, very different. Uh, A couple things we do that I don't see a lot of other financial education are really a lot of women's development books doing. First, we don't do what I call inspiration porn, which is tell you uh, that you are worthy of dreaming your big dreams and tell you to follow your dreams and live your truth, but then don't give you any sort of uh, actionable advice to get there. We don't do that. Uh, (laughs) The second thing we don't do is we don't shame you or judge you for mistakes you may have made about your money. Because the truth is about personal finance, about 20% of the personal finance equation is personal choices. 80% is circumstances, including but not limited to systemic oppression, ableism, racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, natural disasters, recession, all of the things that are not in your control. And so one, shaming you for your past choices just doesn't work. It's not fun. It's not kind. And two, it's uh, it does not acknowledge systemic oppression or any of the other factors that might be going into your money and will and are going into your money. The third is that I wrote this book to be as entertaining as possible. Um, I... I play by Gilmore Girls rules, which is like, I am dropping references to things. And if you don't understand them, you got to look them up or we got to just keep moving. Uh, It's as if, you know, your older sister or your best friend was teaching you about money. We spend every chapter, the first half talking about what I call the patriarchal bullshit. 
of it all, which is like, how did we get here? Why do women hold two thirds of the student debt in the United States? What sort of narratives are we believing about money? And then the latter half of the chapters are, okay, what do we do about it? So if you have ever tried to read a woman's development book, a personal finance book, you're going to find this feels very, very different. And we did that intentionally. Yeah, I love that. And I, I made a note to kind of circle it and start right at the beginning that especially since this is geared toward women, I, I really love that you don't just gloss over so many of the systemic issues. You know, I, I'm curious, sort of you have, you know, such a big presence online and had started with all of that. Sort of where did the book stem from? Had you wanted to write a book for a long time? Were you getting sort of asked by agents or editors to write a book? Yeah, this is a great question. So uh, I was telling you offline, I was and still am a pretty voracious reader. And especially when I was a kid, I, you know, got the the library challenges in the summer and would do them three times over. Um, oh, I and love that. It was just my favorite thing, like going into a Barnes and Noble. There was actually a Barnes and Noble behind my elementary school. And so the the days after school that my mom took me to Barnes and Noble was like, oh my God, this is the height of luxury. Like this is everything. <laughs> and um, so I actually wrote down probably when I was seven years old, because uh, this is me. I was a very, yeah, <laughs> very ridiculous child, ambitious child. I wrote down that I wanted to write a book someday. And so... um Yes, editors were reaching out. Uh, we knew definitely that this was a way to serve our community in a much more accessible way, especially with personal finance. Unfortunately, this is something we're not taught in schools. And unless you have parents who specifically sit down and teach you, you probably haven't been taught either. So we wanted to make this advice as accessible as possible and what's more accessible than your local library. Uh, but also, yes. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to really acknowledge and um, fulfill the promise that I had made to seven-year-old me, which is I'm going to write a book. Now, it it was not going to be a personal finance book. If seven-year-old me realized what book we had written, she would be very, very surprised. (laughs) But um, yeah, it was for many, many reasons. But for me personally, you know, not including the business, not including the the mission of my my company, which is what I believe I was put on this earth to do. It was simply to fulfill a promise I had made to younger me. Um, And I'm sure you've talked about this with other authors. It was the hardest thing professionally I've ever done in my entire life. It was so, so difficult. And I like to think I'm a pretty good writer. And I like to think that that comes relatively easy. And it was still so difficult. Um, so when we hit the New York Times bestseller list last week and I got that call, that oh, was just... congratulations. Thank you. That was just like the thrill of my entire life and something we had been working towards for for years now. Um, so yeah, it was many reasons. But from the business side, it truly was an accessibility thing. You don't write a book to get rich, right? You don't write a book for the money. Yep. You write a book to to hopefully, again, fulfill the promise that I made to myself, but also to make this advice as accessible, as open, as, um, I don't know, relatable as possible. Uh, and it's also something very tangible, which my, me and my team have talked about a lot. We run a predominantly digital company. We have, you know, the 2 million TikTok followers. We have a podcast. All of these things are, you know, digital. I can't hold a podcast episode as much as I want to and as hard as I've tried. <laughs> this is very tangible, right? Like I can walk into an airport and I see it on the shelves. I can actually, I went to my first Barnes and Noble. That was the first time I actually saw it on the shelf um, was I went to the Barnes and Noble I went to as a child. And that was, again, just 
bawled my eyes out and then the Barnes and Noble shelves. Um, but I got to, you know, you get to see it. It's a tangible thing that you get to hold and touch and see. Yeah. Well, for us too, I feel like, at least for me, I'm someone who to really absorb this information, I need to really like take notes and kind of mark things up and see how much material there is, be able to go back to things. So I do find the book really helpful just as a way to kind of teach yourself these concepts. And I want to go back to that too, because um, if you kind of tell us a little bit about sort of your family and kind of what you learned about money growing up and how maybe that's a little bit different than a lot of women experience, because I also thought it was so interesting. You know, I have two young kids and you have a a line in there about how we, I think it's by seven, we've already absorbed like our most important money messages. And I went, oh my gosh, I got to be figuring this out. So yeah, kind of whenever I say that to parents, (laughs) yeah, they do have that freak out whenever I end up saying that stat to parents. So yeah, the stat you're referring to (laughs) is that actually the vast majority of the way we view money, uh, unless we work to change it is cemented by second grade by age seven. And um, if you're an individual that should actually give you a lot of grace and understanding of a lot of these things are taught, or it's just the way you're watching your parents manage money or your guardians, just the way you view money in general or people with it, right? So if you're not great with money, uh, that's not a personal defect, right? It's probably just the way you saw your family manage money. Um, I was lucky enough to see my family manage money in a really positive way, mostly because my parents didn't grow up with a lot of it. And so when I was probably, oh gosh, yeah, around that age, seven or eight, we started having conversations about money. Um, I got my first credit card in high school. And that was a conversation about how to utilize a credit card responsibly. I was learning how to save money. And uh, I began to realize in college, uh, and really the end of high school that, of course, this, this wasn't the case for everybody, even though I thought it was. And that in actuality, that financial education was a privilege. And so with that privilege comes mm-hmm. responsibility. And that's part of the work you know, that I do now is with that privilege of a financial education comes the responsibility of me teaching others. Um, and so if you weren't lucky enough, uh, privileged enough, frankly, to have that education from your parents, you're doing your best right now. You're trying to figure it out. And if, especially if you are a person of color, if you are a first gen immigrant to the United States, this is going to be, again, this is the part of the circumstances uh, equation that is just really hard to navigate. Um, and so we spend the whole first chapter of this book talking about the emotions or the psychology of money. This is one of the other reasons I think this book is different is that a lot of people just want to dive into the actionable advice about how to pay off debt, how to start investing step by step. And we get to that. That's in the book. But we have to spend some time unpacking the sort of narratives that you're believing about money. Um, again, reflecting on how your family managed money. What uh, what did you view or how did you view people with money? Were they evil? Were they uh, you know, morally cor- corrupt? If you pursue wealth, is that bad? Is that, again, morally, uh, morally inept? So I think that all of these things have to be um, dug into before you start learning how to budget <laughs> because yeah. all of these things are not sustainable unless you understand what sort of hangups and emotions and triggers you have about spending money, about saving money, about investing or lack thereof, and just about the pursuit of money and the pursuit of wealth in general. Well, and as you mentioned investing, I thought along with that, it was really interesting to think about, you know, as we're raised, and even as we continue to, to, you know, grow up that as women, we're 
even sort of like fed different information and different advice. Yes. And it rang so true. You talked about how all the financial advice geared toward women is like how to save money and, you know, cut down your grocery bill. And then for men, it's like how to, you know, make that good investment. And can you talk about that a little? So basically the thesis of my entire book is this idea that society, and this is why for me on a quick tangent, why this is not just a personal finance book for me. This is like really a feminist book and also a just like women's self-help or women's development book. Because the truth is, if you want anything in life, you need money, right? You want to buy a house, you need money. You want to have kids or not have kids, you need money. You want to travel, you want to start your own business, you want to donate to causes you believe in, you need money. And the common theme that I kept coming back to is that society promotes and demands women shrink while telling men and teaching men to expand. So the example you just gave is one of the ones in the book, which is if you do something harmless like Google, how to manage money. Still in 2023, the advice is gendered and it's women stop spending money on quote unquote frivolous things And frivolous is not uh, NFL season tickets or golf clubs. It is lattes and manicures and purses, which is, you know, again, gendered. Stop spending money, shrink. And for men, it is, here's the investment you need to make. Here's how you negotiate your salary. Here's how you can uh, add a new stream of income. Here's how you can invest in real estate. For women, it's stop spending money, get more strategic about the money you do have. And for men, it's here's how to make more money or grow your wealth. And we're still seeing this. And this is the perfect example of, again, this expectation of men take up space, women shrink down, shrink your size, Mm -hmm. don't take up space. And in every aspect of money, I saw this. In debt, again, I, I talked about before, Women hold two-thirds of the student debt in the United States. And it's not because, of course, we're not you know, stupid or anything like that. It's literally just because no one has taught us what a loan is or how a loan works. And because predatory yep. companies make money when you're in debt, they're not going to teach you. Investing is the perfect example. Men are more likely to invest than women. Um, women are less likely to invest than men, period, either by not investing at all or by waiting longer to invest. And every day you don't invest, you actually lose money, Um, which again, we're not talking about that in that term um, or in those terms. Again, spending, perfect example, what's frivolous versus what's not. And the very things, by the way, that are are labeled frivolous are the things that we need to do in order to uh, perform femininity correct. And I put correct in quotes in society, like having your hair or makeup done, um, making sure your nails are done, et cetera. So it's just... clothes, it, all the things right, you get penalized right. for if you don't do. Yeah, And we mention in the book, but if you're a woman of color, this is even worse, right? There's this expectation of Black women hair or makeup to be a certain way and um, really to be, you know, as close to whiteness as possible. So it's just really, really interesting. Um, And this is uh, the kind of, again, what I call the patriarchal bullshit of it all is when you start delving in and you start peeling back the onion layers, you just keep peeling and peeling and peeling. And my answer for all of this is take up space by becoming financially confident. If you have money, and I'm not talking Jeff Bezos money because I don't want to uh, exploit anybody. I don't want to be a billionaire. But if I have enough money where I get to be in situations I want to be in rather than situations I'm forced to be in, that is an act of protest. 
in a society that that demands conformity, that demands that I play small in order to control me, having my own money and choosing to leave bad situations, choosing to put myself in great ones or situations I want to be in, that is an act of protest against a society and a system that demands less. So good. That's so good. And it's just making me think too how this feels so new and like we're having to kind of figure this all out. And I mean, I've always been struck and you bring it up in the book. I mean, of course, women are having to figure this out. Like our mothers and grandmothers couldn't even have a credit card until the 70s. Right. You know, you know, we weren't necessarily able to get that same um, advice or, you know, negotiating salary, things like that. Women don't have that same history of like that information being passed down because historically that we just weren't we weren't there yet. So I just think it's really interesting that kind of think about how maybe this generation or this time kind of getting a handle on finance and negotiating and all these things, like what could that then do for like our daughters and like push yeah. push everything along? I just find that really kind of inspiring to think about. No, you're so right. It's like a financial revolution, right? It's like, yeah, yeah you, you, you mentioned the stat. Women could not get credit cards in their own name until 1974. And they couldn't get a business loan in their own name until 10 years later. Like 70s were like yesterday. Like my mom was born in right. 62. Like uh, a lot of the financial advice either has not been there because, um, you know, women people have viewed women as not needing it or the very people we've gone to for financial advice and guidance actively shamed us and don't acknowledge systemic oppression. And so we're seeing, you know, myself and and many others um, have very different conversations about money that I think are really changing, changing the way we view it and changing our expectations of how we want to be treated in those conversations about money. Well, one of the things I thought was really helpful, you explain sort of your, budgeting system and you have kind of these different buckets. And I also like that you're able to kind of, I really like thinking about the the spending in terms of you can spend money on things that you want, but make sure you kind of phrase it as like, make sure you're not spending money on things that you don't value as much. I just want to hear a little bit about your budgeting kind of philosophy. Yeah. So we have a whole chapter on it, but basically it's this idea of you don't need to stop spending money. You just need to stop spending money on things that aren't important to you or things even that you feel lukewarm about because you work really, really hard for your money and you should be making like piping hot decisions in your life, right? If it's not like piping (laughs) hot, we don't want it. It's, It's your money. You worked incredibly hard for it. It should be bringing you the most joy. So we spend uh, part of one chapter identifying what are the things that bring you joy. And then uh, the next chapter, putting together a budget. Now, I know you heard me say the word budget and you're like, I want to vomit. I immediately want to throw up and I get it. (laughs) The thing about budgeting, it is it's not uh, my definition. It's not restriction. It's not deprivation. Instead, it's this idea of like guardrails, like, you know, bumpers and bowling of a permission slip to spend money on things that you love and no side of guilt because you've already planned ahead to accomplish your financial goals. And we talk about the power of automation and doing this, which is like setting up automatic transfers from your checking account to your savings account, setting up automatic transfers to make sure that, you know, your credit card is paid on time and in full. So, 
you know, nothing's worse than going to Cabo and drinking a pina colada with a side of guilt, right? It's like, I want you to be able to enjoy <laughs> your purchases knowing that you've also taken care of, you know, starting to save your emergency fund, starting to pay off your debt. And so we talk about this idea, like you mentioned, of buckets. Um, I mentioned personal finance is personal like 62,000 times in the book. But this is one of those those areas where if you don't like tracking every penny, I know I don't, then don't do it. You should be working for your money. Or excuse me, your money should be working for you rather than the other way around. So when it comes to budgeting, we just have assignments or like groups of money for your goals, for your necessary expenses, and then for your fun things. And then you get to decide what's going in each bucket and what that bucket is actually getting spent on. Um, And I think that that is really flexible and helpful for people. And it all hinges on making sure you take care of yourself financially first so that there's not that leftover guilt later. Well, and I really like that you have setting aside the money for investing as, as part of that. And I feel like it really clicked for me hearing you talk about investing as, you know, and of course it matters the way you do it, but you know, I'm, I'm not a risk taker. And my first thought when I think like investing in stock market is like risk, risk, and like losing your money. And you talk about how, you know, if we're really looking long term, like my first instinct, and I've had to like unlearn this over recent years is like to just put any money I can save in like my little savings account, and then it can't go anywhere. But like you explained so well about how like long term, we're really losing money when we're not yep. investing it. Um, can you just explain that a little bit? I just thought that was, um, you just explain it really well. Thank you. Yeah. So these are the kind of narratives. Again, we spend the first half of every chapter talking about the narratives that you might be believing. And you just mentioned two. One is that investing is risky. And two, that I can just save and that'll be enough. Let's talk about investing is risky. First is that a lot of investing is risky, but I would not call that investing. I'd call it gambling. The like day trading, the GameStop stuff that we heard about two years ago, anything that is like short term, especially like less than a year. I would argue is like borderline gambling or is straight up gambling. The Mm -hmm. way we mitigate our investing risk is to one, make sure our investments are diversified, meaning that you don't just have all of your money in one company or one industry, but making sure it's spread out over a lot of different companies and a lot of different industries. And the second is like you were saying before, making sure this is a long-term game, patience. Actually, over every 20-year period on the U.S. stock market, even a 20-year period that included 2008, 2009, included the Great Depression, included you know that that COVID bust of 2020, even included you know right now, you have been 100% likely to make money. So the key, if you're worried about losing your money or you're worried that it's risky, is to be well diversified and is to be patient. Give yourself as much time as possible. Investing is a long-term game. It is not a temporary thing. It is not a buy now, sell in two days. And then the second narrative, which was, oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember what you said. Oh, like kind of hoard and save everything. Oh, yes. Save your money. Keep it. Yeah. Yep. So we talk about that one as well. This idea, again, we've been told as women, we are good savers, but that investing is not for us. 
That is what we've been told. And we also have been told that you need to see it, feel it, touch it. And my mom jokes because my dad, they actually do have a very like, my dad handles the investments. My mom's good at saving. And she literally has told me, she's like, if I could put all of my money under the mattress, I would. But she goes, I know that's not smart. Because you are losing money actively to inflation. Like every day, it's not invested. And if you do have money to save, which of course is a privilege, what I'm seeing is women have, I don't know, 50, 100, $200,000 in a savings account when most of that should be invested. Because mm-hmm. again, you are actively losing money, one, to inflation, but two, you need to be growing your wealth in order to retire. Retirement is the biggest expense of your life. You are going to have to sustain yourself not working for almost as much time as you worked. It's roughly 30 to 40 years and then another 30 to 40 years. So you have to invest and the average person will not be able to retire if they don't invest. And we teach in the book the ways that you know you can invest in a smart way, in a well-diversified way, in a consistent, stable, non-sexy way, um, as opposed to you know a lot of the stuff that gets press coverage or that you'll see on TikTok or Reddit, which is like, get rich quick tomorrow. And of course, that just doesn't work. Right. Yeah. I just think that is so helpful to think about it that way. Um, and yeah, it, it's almost like you need a different word for it. Um, Cause I do feel like when we think investing, a lot of times we do think that gambling, the day trading and all of that, it's like, we need right. like a long-term investing phrase. Well, I know you mentioned that the writing process was really difficult and I, I would just love to hear a little bit about kind of like, did you take a break from your work and, and just like, um, really focus on the writing for a little bit? Was it all like a hodgepodge? Did it take a long time? What was that like? Uh, I'm laughing because the answer is no. Um, <laughs> I took two months at the end of 2021 and I went on a writer's retreat to Europe. But like oh, technically, wow. I was kind of still online. And also Europe was calling my name. And I would not recommend that. I think there is a certain like blissful idea that you have of like, oh, I will take myself to Europe and I'll write there. And I have to tell you the the most predominant like parts of this book got done in like New York and LA because weirdly I needed like the energy of a city um, that I had already been in so that I didn't feel guilty for not going and eating pasta all the time. Um, <laughs> it was a lovely, it was, yeah. yeah, it was an amazing, uh, amazing yeah, uh, idea to go to Europe. And I'm really thankful I did that. But did I get a lot of writing done? No, definitely not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the most difficult part about this book was, um, yeah, I was continuing to run my company and do everything else. When I know most friends who wrote books, that was just their full-time job. And I basically worked two or three full-time jobs while trying to trying to write. And the subject matter of the book, and if you read it, you know, is that it's... Um, it's really messy at times. And again, I was talking about peeling back that onion layers or uh, those onion layers. And you get to a point where you're like, man, this is, this is really bad. <laughs> like this is, this is really, really bad. And so I factored in, I was going to have to take breaks from writing just because I was tired. I didn't factor in the amount of breaks I would have to take in just because I found a piece of research that was so infuriating. And I was like, I can't, I need like three hours to process this or I need three days Um, because, you know, I would just, I would just read these stats and just frankly feel kind of hopeless. 
And I had a moment probably nine months in, I was sitting on a beach uh, in Malibu. And this was like one of my days off with one of my best friends. And she had written a book. And we were just talking about, you know, the whole process. And I'm like, what, what does this book matter in the grand scheme of things? Like, I'm not solving inequality with this book. If someone is honest to God, paycheck to paycheck, this or any other personal finance book isn't going to help. So like, what am I doing? <laughs> and we just had a really honest conversation about it. And of course, you write the book anyway, because I've helped 3 million women. Our company has helped 3 million women. And we get messages now every five minutes from a woman somewhere saying that they feel more confident in every aspect of their life now because they got that 20% raise or they paid off their credit card debt or they just have that first $1,000 saved. Um, so we know that this matters. Also, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's really difficult, right? It doesn't solve capitalism. It doesn't solve inequality. But the hope is that we just get one step closer. And if this impacts one person, I have a feeling it'll impact a lot more than that. But if it impacts one person, then it's worth doing. Um, yeah, and it yeah, gives it us really, tools it really within. It gives us tools within this mess that yeah <laughs> we're sort of in. No, I I think it's really helpful, and I I'm sure it's making a big impact. Thank um, you. I appreciate that. Well, lastly, I just always love to hear what authors are reading themselves. Do you have any books that you'd want to recommend? I I'm sure you've read it. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, or you've heard of it. I've heard of it. I keep okay. seeing it. I have not actually read it yet. Oh my God. Favorite book other than mine of last year of 2022. It was um, Ooh. so moving. I like cried three different times. It's a love story, but not romantic love. Um, and it's just like one of those books that feels like so hopeful, but at the same time, so devastating. And you're like, like, I love anytime I'm like, you get to talk about like the messiness of being alive or the messiness of being human. And it just felt like that. It was so, so, so good. Yeah. Cried three different times. I recommended it to everybody. (laughs) I know it's a phenomenal book. I think a lot of people have read it, so it might not come as a surprise, but like it was so good. Um, and I'm reading lessons in chemistry right now. And so far so good as well. Oh, two books that I've heard about like so much this year and I need to move them up to the top of my list because I keep hearing how good they are. <laughs> um, those are great. Well, Tori, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I really hope that listeners get Financial Feminists from their local library or head to their um, independent bookstore. I really uh, think it's very helpful. I also think it would be a great gift for any women in your life or, you know, daughters, nieces, anything like that. And um, yeah, best of luck with all your future projects and continuing to to promote the book. Thank you. I'll also say too, don't, if you are a non- woman identifying person. We have gotten questions of like, is this book for me? If you are someone who believes in the equality of genders, you are a financial feminist. So this book, regardless of your gender identity, is going to be helpful for you. Um, I specifically, of course, wrote it for women and women's experiences. But uh, if you have men in your life, if you have boys in your life, this will also be a great book for them um, and a very necessary book for them because they need to understand how the financial system was built yes. by and for them and how it disenfranchises almost everybody else. So um, oh, that's I a think really good that, point. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a question we've been getting a lot of like, am I allowed to read this book? And I'm like, if you are a feminist, someone who believes in the equality of genders, then yes, you can read this book 100%. So I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Tori. 
For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.